Ecclesiastes. I'd like you to turn to Ecclesiastes for a moment this morning. If you want to, you can follow along with me. I want to read the first 11 verses of the first chapter. And um, if you'd rather, I invite you to close your eyes and kind of meditate on the words that you're about to hear. Get the context of what we're going to look at today. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all of his work, which he does under the sun? Generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along on its circular course. The wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it's new? Already it has existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the latter, later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. Too soon old, too late wise. That's a profound saying that I often use at funerals. Sometimes, however, there is a wealth of wisdom to be found through the advice of youth. So this morning, this morning I, I'd like to acknowledge some sage advice from a handful of life's youngest philosophers, and they range from 9 to 15 years of age. Patrick, 10 years old, offers his sage wisdom Never trust the dog to watch your food. <laughs> Michael, age 14, smart guy, says, Never tell your mom her diet's not working. <laughs> Emily, age 10, this is not my granddaughter, says, Don't pull your dad's finger when he tells you to. <laughs> when your mom is mad at your dad, don't let her brush your hair, says one young girl. You can't hide a piece of broccoli in a glass of milk, says Amir, age nine. And if you want a kitten, start out by asking for a horse. <laughs> Naomi's got a good one there. Felt markers are not good to use as lipstick, says Lauren, age nine. And don't pick on your sister when she's holding a baseball bat, Joel said. Alicia, age 13, says, when you get a bad grade in school, show it to your mom while she's on the phone. <laughs> and Michael, age 14, says, when your dad is mad at you and asks you, do I look stupid? Don't answer him. 
These are incredibly good pieces of advice, aren't they? Practical, insightful, true. As we read the words of Ecclesiastes, specifically in verses 12 to 18, which I'm going to read in a few moments, another gem of wisdom will emerge that is equally good advice, also practical, insightful, and profoundly true. The difference, however, is that it spills from the mouth of an aged man rather than a youthful prodigy. It comes as the woeful lament of a man who has plumbed the depths of all that life has, has to offer and in the process churned up a lot of muck. What's left is a piece of advice that all of us should heed, but like children who assume that their parents don't know anything about life, about what life is like in the real world, we refuse to follow his advice. What's the advice? Very simply, in a few words, it's human wisdom makes a weak foundation. Human wisdom makes a weak foundation. If you're in Ecclesiastes, look at verses 12 to 18 in chapter 1. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realized that this also is striving after wind, because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Wow, Solomon's just like on a happy roll, isn't he? Our efforts at solving life's riddle of meaning are absolutely useless, says Solomon in these verses. And he should know, because he's been there, he's done that, he paid for the T-shirt, and I might add he paid an enormous price for it. What I find in this text are the words of a pilgrim on a quest for existential meaning. Most people today, you and I, most people out in the world, they're on the same track. They're longing to make some kind of sense out of their lives. They ache to find some meaning to their existence, a little significance maybe, a profound destiny perhaps. They seek and search and study and scratching in the dirt for a glimmer of hope, a tiny handhold of evidence that there are answers to their insurmountable questions. But unless their horizons are somehow broadened from under the sun, as you see repeated in this book so many times, to include something beyond the realm of this earth, the search will end in utter despair. All of us, believer and non-believer alike, can get caught in this web of Solomon's despair if we're not careful. In verse 12, Chapter 1, Solomon, in the midst of his dissertation on life's futility, introduces himself to us as an honest seeker. An honest seeker. 
verses 12 and 13 again. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. What Solomon is saying here is that he observed life broadly. He was king over Jerusalem. As people who seek answers to questions of life, most of us can relate to this man that's writing this. But on another level, his search transcends ours in that his privileged position as king allowed him to see and do things way beyond the scope of our limited experiences. He was king. And he was not just any king. He was the son of David. He had wealth. He had power. He had peace on every side. For 40 years, a battle was never waged against his people, the Bible says. In addition, he had global interaction as nations sent delegates from the ends of the earth to bask in the unmatched wisdom which God had graciously given to him. He had opportunity to observe life from a myriad of colorful angles which we don't usually have access to. So he observed life broadly. But he also investigated life meticulously. In verse 13, it says, I set my mind to seek and explore wisdom by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. When he says he set his mind to seek and explore, he wasn't just observing things generally. The Hebrew words here mean that he set out to get to the root of things, to spy out by intense scrutinization from every side all that has been done under heaven. Similar term to a phrase to under the sun, the place where most people operate today, right here on earth, right? That's the perspective from which Solomon is coming here on earth and under the sun S-U-N, perspective. Let me ask you a question. What would you do if you had a brilliant mind, the seat of power, an infinite amount of wealth at your disposal, and all the time in the world? I know you're thinking, you're thinking, I don't know what I'd do, but I'd sure like to try. (laughs) What would you do? Probably what Solomon did. He got into everything under the sun. He investigated everything personally. It wasn't enough to simply learn from the mistake of his parents, the mistakes of his parents, or the mistakes of his peers, or others around him. He couldn't take the Word of God at face value. No, no, no. He had to experiment with everything for himself. Read chapter 2. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. If you read right through chapter 2, you'll find out exactly what he did. He had multiple sexual partners. He felt the burn of the booze as it went down his throat. He had the hangovers. He acted like a fool. He tantalized his taste buds with everything you could imagine. 
He indulged his every pleasure. He literally went nuts with life. From alcoholic to workaholic, he experienced it all. Chuck Swindoll remarks, this is the journal of a man who stopped at nothing when he sought to explore by human wisdom all things under the heavens. There was no limit to his brains, no limit to his bucks, no limitations or reservations. And what was the upshot of it all? In the final analysis, Solomon concludes in verse 13, it is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. Listen and learn, Solomon warns. Save yourself the headache. You don't have to experience everything I have to know that this search for the meaning of life from an earthly perspective is a grievous pursuit. That's what he's saying. And an empty pursuit at that. It's like trying to catch the wind. Vanity of vanities. For all practical purposes, this is what Solomon's saying. He's saying it's not worth it to get into the drug thing. You're a fool if you think an affair is going to satisfy the gaping hole of loneliness in your heart. I've had every relationship imaginable, Solomon says, so trust me on this, before you get into a situation that you will regret. It won't work. You will not end up happy. Don't think that one more successful business deal or athletic accomplishment or graduate degree will seal your happiness or define your unanswered questions. They won't. At the end of your life, when you look back at all the time that you spent on all of that stuff and death is scratching at your door, you're going to wonder what the big deal was and what all the fuss was about that you stressed out with all the days of your life. Yet right there, at the end of verse 13, he says something that opens the door to a little understanding. It's easy to miss if you're only looking at it with an under-the-sun mindset. Look again at verse 13. Look again at what this seeker says. He says, it is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. Did you catch that? You can gloss right over it. God has given it. Deliberately induced frustration. Jay Stafford Wright explains, in his first mention of God in verse 13, the teacher stated what comes out again later that God has given something to man that he has denied to the rest of the animal world. The constant, though often worrying, urge to make sense of life and to work toward a transcendental ideal. An animal lives within the circle of its instincts and drives. Man, in the likeness of God, looks for meanings so that he can control and direct his instinctive desires. Someone has said that it's better to be Socrates discontented because he can't solve his problems than a contented pig. It may sound easy to abandon the search for ultimates and to drop to an animal level, 
But even the dropout often knows the restlessness and the pricks of conscience that belong to him as a man. We are fallen beings who need the life and the illumination that come from God, unquote. God has given this grievous search to the sons of men. God did it, and he did it deliberately. You may be asking yourself, why in the world would he do that? Walter Wink, professor of biblical interpretation at Auburn Theological Seminary years ago, wrote that one of Jesus' most effective teaching methods was what he called deliberately induced frustration. He was forever posing questions that his disciples couldn't answer, giving them assignments that they absolutely could not complete, teaching that they couldn't understand. This was Jesus' method. Jesus understood that frustration gets our attention, doesn't it? Can open us up to receiving help from beyond ourselves. In Hebrew here, sons of men in verse 13 is literally the sons of Adam. In other words, the reference may not be necessarily to humanity and mass, but to the nature of mankind. What's inside of him is a fallen human being. Ray Steadman lends insight on this point in his book, Is This All There Is to Life? He says, I think he's making a reference to the fall of man here. He's recognizing the fact that it's difficult for men to discover answers because there is something wrong inside of him. It's a tricky business for a man who senses an overwhelming curiosity to discover the secrets of life around him, yet he finds himself baffled all the time by an inadequate understanding. Man cannot put it all together. And like Solomon, we, have all, we all have this urge to seek answers, don't we? To find meaning. The human heart has been dissatisfied and frustrated since we left Eden. Why? Because God put it there after the fall so that the search for fulfillment might lead us to realize that nothing on earth can replace what only heaven can provide. And Solomon's search proves it as he moves from an honest seeker here to a hopeless skeptic. Look at verse 14. I've seen all the works which, I, which have been done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Some time ago, one Sunday afternoon following a church service like this one, I had the unique pleasure of playing Trivial Pursuit at my parents' house with a number of my relatives. The only thing more frustrating than an afternoon of trivial pursuit is a lifetime of it. As one man has said, no one wants to get stuck doing trivial things. Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl once wrote in Man's Search for Meaning that the victims of the concentration camps, he among them, did not dare to succumb to meaninglessness for only an enduring faith in meaning kept them alive. 
He described that one of the most demeaning and damaging aspects of life in the camps was the assignment of deliberately meaningless tasks, such as moving piles of dirt endlessly from one place to another for no apparent purpose at all. Frankel wrote, I can survive anyhow as long as there is a why. Sometimes I feel, and maybe you do too, like life is little more than moving piles of dirt from one site to another, right? Even in the midst of a calling to serve Christ and bear fruit for His kingdom, where I know that life change can happen and eternity can be radically altered for people, when I begin to view my life with an under-the-sun mentality... I find myself saying things like, well, like Solomon said. You deal with people on a day-in and day-out basis, and you see what a mess that some of us have made of our lives. This is what I think in my head. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. All is vanity. That's what happens to us when we get the under-the-sun mindset. To the hopeless skeptic, the world is a twisted, messed-up place, and there is a glaring lack of resources to do anything about it. You ever feel like that? How often do we struggle with things in our own lives, in our own families that are so far out of whack, twisted and corrupt, and even though we long with every ounce in our being to fix them and make them right, somehow we can't do it. We fall far short of it. And no matter how hard we try, we're frustrated with the truth that some things just cannot be straightened by any earthly power. Or the fact that no matter how much you discover, no matter how much knowledge you acquire, there is knowledge you wish you had that you cannot obtain. You know, I'll bet the prodigal son's father, no matter how much he wanted to straighten out his son... No matter how much he tried to figure out what was missing in his parenting skills, couldn't figure it out. He couldn't straighten what was crooked or figure out what was lacking in his son's life. We cannot straighten out the mess that this world is in, nor can any amount of human wisdom turn it around. We can't. And that frustration causes many people to become hopeless skeptics. But though, to the one who views these frustrations with faith, we realize that these dilemmas serve as a profound reminder of the limits of being human, right? This should drive us not to despair, but to God. Let me propose this. Life does not make sense outside of God and will never fully make sense because we are not God. Let me say that again. Life does not make sense outside of God and will never fully make sense because we are not God. That is really the message of Ecclesiastes. Author Ray Pritchard says, there are really only two theologies in the world. Here they are in simple form. 
write them down. There is big God and little me. That's one theology. Or there is little God and big me. Those are the two theologies. Solomon's view of himself was so huge that he had shrunk his God to a manageable size. Little God, big me. And we often do the same thing. That the Bible has a name for a God you can manage. We just talked about it a few weeks ago. You know what it is? It's an idol. An idol. And Lord knows Solomon had plenty of them. And so do we. The point is that our inability to straighten out what is crooked or count on what is not there is often the perfect context for God to show himself. One of the best examples I've ever heard was given by lead pastor Erwin McManus of Mosaic Church in Los Angeles, California in his book, An Unstoppable Force. He writes that he learned the hard way that, my, that his own failure is often the context for God's miracle. You find that to be true? Our own failure is often the context for God's miracles to take place. He says, I was pastoring a small congregation in South Dallas back in 1985, and just a handful of us had begun meeting in a duplex. It took a little while, but after a year or so, we moved into a house. We moved from being half of a house church to a real house church. God blessed our work, and we saw individuals and families coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And although we were still small, we felt that we were living in New Testament times. One day, we saw an acre of land for sale on Irve Street. Though our congregation was still less than 50 adults, many of whom were on welfare, we began to talk and pray about purchasing that property. It seems strange that an acre of land so close to downtown Dallas had remained undeveloped while everything around it was built up. I never stopped to reflect on why this property hadn't been developed. So I went to the local association of churches and asked the director of missions if they would consider financially undergirding our efforts. Frankly, at first there was little response. South Dallas was not a target community for new growth. It was poor. It was dangerous. It was a transitional community. But in my, my appeal to the director, I even mentioned that it was unlikely we would succeed. And if that were the case, the property would still be available for resale. In my mind, that eliminated some of the risk on their end. We ended up buying the land, but not with our money. A gracious church in North Dallas got involved, which allowed the association to partner with us and purchase the property. They put all the money up front, and after the purchase, the land remained dormant while we continued to build a stronger base in our congregation. We looked forward to the day that we could actually build a facility where we could accommodate a seven-day-a-week ministry to the community. And then we were ready. We began the process of obtaining the building permits, but a strange thing happened on the way to fulfilling the dream. The city of Dallas had tagged pro the property unbuildable. It had been a landfill. It was worthless. We had bought an acre of garbage, he says. 
Several core samples were taken. From what I understood, they went at least 25 feet deep and found nothing but trash. Finally made sense. This was the reason the acre of land had remained undeveloped. Duh. You couldn't build on it. Words cannot express the despair that overwhelmed me, he said. I had led our congregation to buy an acre of garbage. I was ashamed and humiliated and wondered why God would ever let this happen. My reputation was ruined along with my own self-respect. And in moments like these, trying to explain why God would let something like this happen is not an easy thing to do. There is no proper way to stand before the people that God has called you to lead and tell them that you failed. All I could do was ask our congregation to pray with me to believe that God was with us and that he would use even the worst of human mistakes to perform the greatest of miracles. So for months and months and months, we prayed. And the longer we prayed, the more foolish our requests seemed. We began asking God to turn the landfill into a land filled with his people. That he would perform a miracle to make it easier to endure this season. He says, I created personal slogans like, our trash is God's treasure, or our garbage to God's glory. There was a church down the highway that was called the Church on the Rock, so I supposed we would be the church on the dump. He said, this helped a little, but in the end, the situation remained the same. The pastor and his wife, his wife and some of his youth visited us from out of town to help on a mission project. We were sitting around a little table in the house where the Cornerstone Church met. It didn't take long before the question I dreaded to hear was raised again. What are you going to do with that landfill? We were infamous. Far and wide, people knew of our reputation for buying a garbage dump. Also sitting with us was a woman named Dolores Ruby from Cornerstone Church, their church. She had served the community all of her adult life, but before I could answer the question, before I could explain one more time, Dolores said something that changed everything for me. She looked at him and said, quote, it's taken care of. We've prayed and asked God to turn it into soil. There was a rush inside of me, he said. I had what I can only describe as God goosebumps. It seemed as if God was confirming her words and telling me that he wasn't finished with us yet. I went back to the association and asked them to take another core sample, and their response was no less than hostile. I understood why, but for whatever the reason, they decided to do what I had asked them to do, and this time, they found soil. Now, I know what you're thinking. No way. Things like this don't happen in our contemporary society. You have to be in Africa for God to perform miracles through Southern Baptists. I thought about it a lot myself. How did this happen? Was it because the core sample was in a different part of the land? Or could it be that God had actually performed a miracle and changed the landfill to good soil? He says, what I do know is that the same realtor who sold the property came to me and offered me three times the amount that he had sold it for once he heard that we had the clearance to build on it. 
What I do know, he says, is that the previous owners could not build on the property, but we could. What I do know is that we were told the property was worthless and unusable. But what I cannot tell you is what happened beneath the ground at 2815 South Herve Street. All I can tell you is what I know, and that is that God took my failure and performed a miracle. Today, Cornerstone worships on that acre of land in a sanctuary built by our own hands. Needless to say, we were never the same again. After living by faith, living only by the faith was not enough anymore. Faith makes all the difference in your perspective. Jesus, when he walked under the sun, proved that crooked lives, limbs, and outlooks can be straightened when faith is involved. Just read Luke 13 and Matthew 12 and Matthew 15. Jesus can create what man cannot conceive in order to meet every single need. Read John chapter 6 when they had no food and they fed the 5,000 with a few fish and some loaves of bread. It all depends on where you're standing and in what direction you're looking. Give me a lever long enough and a place to stand, said Archimedes, and I will move the world. The problem is not the lever. It's finding a place to stand. And as one man put it, you cannot explain the world from the standpoint of the world. The answer must come from somewhere else, and our search for answers will always lead to despair until our search leads us finally to God. When we remove Jesus Christ from our pursuit, we are headed for ultimate disaster. We're headed for ultimate disaster. And that's where Solomon was headed. And that's what we're going to pick it up with next week. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we cannot live life under the sun effectively, efficiently, miraculously, and perfectly without being in the sun. The S-O-N, son. Jesus, in our pursuit of meaning, lead us to you. Let us understand that the frustrations that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, from morning until evening when we lay our head on the pillow, are deliberately given by you to lead us to you. Our Father, I pray that if there's anybody in this room right now that is struggling, Lord God, with frustration in their lives, whether it be physical, emotional, financial, spiritual, physical, whatever it is, that, God, their frustration would turn to an honest seeking of your face, that you would visit them, Lord God, with answers 
that by your word, you might change them. And by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, they would be transformed and find meaning and significance. That they might live their lives under the sun for the purpose which you have created them for. God, that is a prayer for all of us, myself included. May we live to your glory and bring honor to your name. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, I pray, and in his name, amen.